0: This week, we are continuing our sermon series titled, How Essential is Church? In this series, we have been studying the three pastoral letters in the New Testament, especially looking at them in light of their role as building blocks of the early Christian church and considering how we might relate to these letters now. Today's sermon is for people who love Jesus, love the church, believe in the Bible as a witness to Christ, and who want to respectfully work through a difficult text with an open mind. This is particularly appropriate on a day like Pentecost, when we celebrate the apostles learning to communicate in new ways through the power of the Spirit. Today's main passage, which you will hear read shortly, is from a pastoral letter called 1 Timothy, and appears to mandate a requirement that women be silent, submissive, and appropriate. This passage is a text often used as a proof text to support banning women from ministry and furthermore has been part of ongoing and historical oppression of women within both society and the church, relegating us to positions of submission and silencing our voices. When our pastoral team, Kent, Dale, and I decided to do a sermon series on the pastoral letters, We knew that to cover the letters and omit this text would be to ignore a devastatingly influential piece of scripture. Yet, to address it means we each need to reckon with this challenging text, but who should preach on it? If Kent or Dale were to preach on the text, it might accidentally lend credence to the idea that women should not preach or teach. Or it inadvertently might come across as if the church needs a male authority figure to generally defend or legitimate women's roles in the church. And specifically my authority to preach and teach, although I have been called, I believe, by God and ordained by the church as a teaching elder and minister of the word and sacrament with an education ordination and standing equal in the church. I do know that both Dale and Kent would have done excellent sermons on the text and affirmed all their female colleagues in ministry and their desire for women to be full participants in the life of the church and beyond. They both have a lot to offer on this subject I've learned in our many discussions, and I wish we were in the sanctuary today so that we could stand side by side as colleagues on the chancel. Ultimately, the decision of who should preach was left up to me. And I decided to preach. And this is why. Here we are with this scripture in our Bibles and thousands of years of historically entrenched patriarchal scholarship, excluding women's voices from the conversation. How could I not speak up? Today we will hear two readings, both letters claiming to be written by Paul to give guidance to early Christian churches. The first is a reading from Timothy with a companion piece from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. The earlier letter, Galatians, is generally acknowledged to be authentically Paul, while the letter known as 1 Timothy is either not actually written by Paul or represents a later change in his thought process. Let's hear now what the scriptures have to say.
1: Our first scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Our second scripture reading comes from the pastoral letter known as 1 Timothy. I desire, then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently, in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Here ends the reading of the epistles. Amen.
0: Okay we've heard from Paul and possibly someone writing in the style of Paul. Let's now think about Jesus for a minute. Most of us probably have a picture that comes to mind when we think of Jesus. I once had a vision of Jesus so strong that I could see the texture of his hair, the deep brown of his skin, and smell desert and oil in the air around him. Bring your picture of Jesus to mind What is Jesus doing? Is he, as the Bible tells us, healing a woman on the Sabbath, one who was crippled for 18 years? Is he refusing to condemn a woman caught in adultery, though the religious authorities want to stone her? Is he surprising his disciples by speaking with a Samaritan woman at a well, one who was known for having many husbands, one that others might not speak to, revealing himself to her to be the Messiah so that she might go to town and call others to come and see him. Is he in a crowd, being touched by a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, a woman considered unclean and cast out, yet Jesus calls her daughter and heals her? Is he allowing a woman to anoint his head with expensive oil, praising her and telling naysayers that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, she will be remembered? Is he sitting in a church building saying, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. No, Jesus didn't say that. The Bible tells us that Jesus treated women with extraordinary compassion and respect. He engaged with them in ways that were totally counter to the culture of the time, treating them as people of worth and dignity, walking with them, teaching them, and restoring them to health and wholeness. So if Jesus didn't say these words, well, who did and why? These words come from a letter in the Bible known as 1 Timothy. The letter is named for its purported recipient, Timothy, Paul's colleague and spiritual heir. The letter presents Paul as the author, a wise teacher handing down his wisdom to guide Timothy in his ministry. However, it has been long debated whether Paul wrote this letter or whether a later disciple wrote it in Paul's name to lend guidance to churches as they were established in a new time and place. Writing in an established person's name was a relatively common practice in the ancient world. So it's not exceptional or strange that someone might take this practice on. Tradition aside, a majority of contemporary scholars agree that 1 Timothy was not written by Paul. Because it differs from authentic letters of Paul in vocabulary, style, theology, statements about sin, the law, and faith. It is also quite different in its teachings about people, particularly enslaved persons and women, which we can see when we compare the reading from Galatians with 1 Timothy. A close examination of 1 Timothy and the other pastoral letters reveals that the author, whether or not it is Paul, has adopted many of the cultural ideals of the Greco-Roman culture around him. And it is the author's desire for Christians of the time to assimilate into Greco-Roman culture, and this accounts for many of the differences between the pastoral letters and others, like Galatians. This adoption of Greco-Roman culture is important to notice because it can help us understand the context of the letter, help us understand where we might find important parallels for our lives today, but also to help us notice where the author drifts away from drawing meaning from Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection, and is instead applying his own cultural values. To start with, The word used in the letter for Savior is not the same as Messiah from the Hebrew times and scriptures. For those of us, for those of the Hebrew time and culture, the expected Messiah, remember, was a king of David's line and who would come and overthrow the oppressors in the land and reestablish Israel. That was the hope of the people when they were waiting for their Messiah. And Jesus came and was a new and different kind of Messiah. These New Testament letters are taking the idea of savior and reacting within the prevailing culture where Roman emperor, though Roman emperor, was hailed as the benefactor and savior of the world. People believed he was the savior of the world who would guarantee the empire's political unity and maintain prosperity and well-being, which in the Greek is a lot like salvation and give meaning in life for his citizens. So when the author of the letter and the people in churches in New Testament times were claiming that Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior, they were claiming Jesus instead of the emperor as the highest authority in their lives. A bold statement, to be sure, to make in a world where the emperor was all-powerful. These pastoral letters, though, teach that these early Christians should live as Christians in a way that conforms with the world around them, even praying for the emperor. They were encouraged to live in harmony with the established social order, and this was in fact seen as a virtue. As part of living in harmony with the established social norms, Christian ethics became interlocked closely with societal ethics. For example, the structure of the Greco-Roman household was an order in society that the church as an institution sought to uphold the way the household was organized was believed to be a virtue in itself. And the church begins to see itself as the household of God, and they use the ancient model of the household as a paradigm for establishing the hierarchical structure of the church. So to understand the church in the pastoral letters, we need to know about the Greco-Roman household. Within the ideal household in Greco-Roman times, men had unilateral authority over their wives and their slaves and their children. That's right, 1 Timothy parallels wives and slaves. If you start looking for it, you will see a paralleling of expectation of conduct for women or wives and slaves throughout this letter and others like 1 Peter in the New Testament. Wives were subordinate to and dependent on their husbands and male relatives. Their role in society was to marry young, bear children and maintain the household. Though they could not control property and were considered incapable of managing their own affairs and thus had to have a male relative speak for them legally. Women had a very limited role in public life. They could not attend, speak in or vote at political assemblies, and they could not hold any position of political responsibility. We have some evidence that things were different in the earliest Christian churches and within the earliest followers of Jesus. The gospel accounts tell us of women as followers, disciples really, of Jesus, people like Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna, who accompanied Jesus during his ministry and supported him out of their private means. And in the Undisputed Letters of Paul, Paul's greetings give us clues to the roles that women played in the early Jesus movement. In his letter to the Romans, Paul greets Prisca, Junia, Julia, and Narius' sister, who worked and traveled as missionaries in pairs with their husbands or brothers. Paul notes that Prisca and her husband risk their lives to save his. Paul praises Junia as a prominent apostle who had been imprisoned for her labor. Mary and Persis are commended for their hard work. In Philippians, Iota and Syntyche are called Paul's fellow workers in the gospel. Additionally, before Christianity was legal in the Roman Empire, Christians met together in house churches rather than in formal church buildings. Homes were a woman's domain within the culture. And women such as Afia and Prisca and Lydia of Thyatira took on leadership roles or even headed churches in their homes. Women held offices such as deacons and worship. As prophets, women likely would also have preached, taught, led prayer, and perhaps even presided over the Eucharistic meal. So within the earliest church movements, we can see a reflection of the ideals of the letter to the Galatians, where Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But as that early church becomes more established, there comes a desire to have it fit in better with the norms of the wider culture, which is where this letter to Timothy comes in. The instructions we read about women in the church are seemingly intended to align Christian churches with the Greco-Roman culture and the Greco-Roman household, where women's rights are severely restricted. The instructions in Timothy cohere with the local culture. The author demands women to dress with modesty according to the standards of the day and submit not to their baptism in Christ, but to men, And the author reworks theology of the Genesis account to support a patriarchal hierarchy aligned with Greco-Roman culture. Notably, the only time this particular word for authority is used in the Bible here, in the line, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. It's the only time in the New Testament where this word authority is used in this way, and its meaning in the Greek is unclear. In other non-biblical Greek texts, the word is infrequent, but when it is used, it is sometimes associated with violent authority, even murder, though it probably simply means acting in a domineering manner. So the text might be saying, I permit no woman to teach in a domineering manner, which, gender aside, is generally not a great way to teach anyway. Particularly shocking, I think, for Christians is that the author of this letter says women will be saved through childbearing as long as the woman is modest and faithful enough. Yes, he says saved. In other words, the author says salvation for women comes through having children and not by grace through faith in Christ. Very different from Paul's other letters. Some people tap dance around this hypocrisy in the author's approach to salvation by saying that the translation actually means that women will be brought safely through childbirth if they are holy, modest, and faithful enough. But that also wasn't a true statement either, given how dangerous childbirth can be, especially then. Personally, I think 1 Timothy was not authored by Paul given that it is so far from his emphasis on salvation by grace through faith in his other letters. And the majority of modern scholars also do not think this is Paul. And I think it matters who wrote the letter because the author of the letter is borrowing his authority from Paul. However, let's say I'm wrong for argument's sake, and this letter is indeed authored by Paul. If it is Paul, the best argument I can find for the shift in his worldviews and theology is that Paul knowingly employed something called a strategy of accommodation. That is, he encouraged his followers to accommodate to the culture in order to service the spreading of the gospel. This was something Paul was known for doing, and Paul articulates the strategy in 1 Corinthians, where he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law to the weak i became weak to win the weak i have become all things to all people so that by all possible means i might save some i do this for the sake of the gospel that i might share in its blessings so if 1st timothy is written by paul he is likely advocating that the people he was writing to were to attempt to fit in rather than stand out just like he did in his missionary work in service to the spread of the gospel If this is the strategy that he is emphasizing and the culture that the early church was trying to fit in with was the Greco-Roman culture where men dominated and controlled and women submitted, then it makes sense that churches might want to fall in line in order to not seem dangerous or socially subversive. It's a safe strategy to fly under the radar, so to speak, and continue spreading the gospel. In short, and whether this letter is Paul or not, this letter takes Christian scripture and theology and makes Christianity more appealing to people in a local cultural context. It's written to a particular church in a particular place and time and is therefore not a directive for Christians of all times and all places. So what are we as modern Christians to do with these words in 1 Timothy? Well, first, we might notice where we as Christians and as a church body employ our own strategies of accommodation, both positively and negatively. Accommodating to the culture is not always a negative. Fitting in with the culture around us can and does allow for the spread of the gospel, and we can reflect sincerely on where we might appropriately seek to fit in with the world around us. But we should also notice where we are bending the gospel to fit the culture. Are we saying or doing things in the name of God that are actually about spreading American cultural ideals rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ? For example, when we talk about freedom, are we talking about freedom to do whatever we want, regardless of how it affects other people? Or are we talking about the kind of freedom found in Christ that requires us to lay down our lives for our friends and love our neighbors as ourselves. Second, when discerning what a particular scripture verse means, it is valuable to look at its original context, audience, and history of the verse, just like we have today, rather than evaluating the meaning out of context. And we must always place each verse alongside what we know about what Jesus taught, how he lived, how and why he died and was resurrected, so that we interpret verses in ways that are consistent with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus Christ, which is where everything always should start and end, let's turn back to him and the good news of the gospel. We, start out, we started out envisioning Jesus, and let's bring him to mind again. Let's think of him on that morning of the resurrection. What is he doing? Well, all four Gospels tell us that he first appeared to women. In Mark, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus first, but she is not believed. In John, Jesus calls her by name and tells her to go tell the other disciples that she has seen the Lord. In Matthew, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and sends them to tell the other disciples that he will see them in Galilee. Luke also has the women announce the resurrection, though Luke points out that the other disciples thought that this was ridiculous, did not believe them. But Jesus, Jesus, For Jesus, the women were trustworthy witnesses in spite of a culture that would dismiss, disbelieve, and demean the words of women. Jesus appeared to the women first and sent them to spread the good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that whoever we are, we are loved, forgiven, and saved by grace through faith in Christ. Thanks
1: be to God. Amen.